Hello and welcome to The Poet Taster. My name's Andrew Smith and this is the podcast for everyone who always wanted to know just a little bit more about poetry and how it works but didn't really know where to start. Now the name Poet Taster is a slightly strange name for a podcast. Traditionally it's been used to refer to somebody who has absolutely no idea about how to write poetry or at least how to write good poetry. But I confess every time I see that word I always think of somebody who reads poetry, somebody who sort of dips in and out of poetry. And I thought it's not a bad way of describing what I hope to do in these episodes. In each episode I'll choose a poem, maybe a couple of poems, and talk about basically what makes them tick. You know, what's, what is it about their structure, their style, the themes uh, that, that brings them together? What was the poet doing? And what was happening in the, in the general kind of culture in which these poems were created? The idea is to offer you a couple of tasting notes to give you a bit of an anchor to hold on to when you're reading these poems and trying to make sense of them. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Let's get on with the show. In this episode, I want to share two poems by a guy called John Clare, who was uh, writing in the sort of the 1820s and into the 1830s. John Clare was known in his own time as the Northamptonshire peasant poet. He was a farm labourer who had a little bit of schooling. He probably finished school around 14 and went out and did a lot of odd jobs um, in the in the rural landscape um, in Northamptonshire in Britain. He also had a love of poetry and kind of was a bit of a self-taught poet. And he he really made a name for himself in the 1820s as kind of a a natural-born genius. Um, He really spoke to that period's fascination with the question of whether poets are born um, or whether they're they're trained. Um, And there was a, a kind of a real excitement to find... Uh, people like John Clare, who didn't have a lot of formal training, who weren't a member of the, sort of the educated classes, who still seemed to be able to write really compelling poetry. Clare fell out of favour, or was forgotten about, for a good hundred years or so, even longer, uh, and then was really rediscovered in the 1960s and 1970s, uh, and has since kind of become regarded as one of the one of the real one of the most important voices in the British Romantic movement, which I'll probably have a little bit more to say about in future episodes. Um, for those of you who um, are a little confused about this idea of romanticism, when people talk about romantic poetry, in this sense, you're talking about it with a capital R, so it's it's part of the Romantic movement, as opposed to romantic with a small R, which is kind of love poetry. So John Clare is part of this broader uh, romantic movement that really kind of gets going in the 1780s and starts fizzling out a little bit in the 1820s and 1830s. Um, Traditionally, romantic poetry has been associated with people like William Wordsworth, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, John Keats, Shelley, Byron, and to a certain extent, William Blake. And the reason why Clare has really found a voice in recent decades is because he sort of, he he kind of offers a different perspective on what's going on in Britain in this period. And while he's still writing about nature and about his own personal response to nature in the natural world in the same way that somebody like William Wordsworth did, 
he's coming at it from a very different perspective. He's coming at it from the point of view of somebody who actually works in nature on a day-to-day basis, and, and he records his impressions um, of the world around him. He records his impressions of daily life in the countryside. Now, the poems I want to share today are both based around the idea of gypsies, um, which is probably not a term that's um, uh, that's politically correct these days, um, but very much um, uh, current in um, in the world uh, that Claire was writing in. Um, and I, the reason I've chosen these poems is not only are they both based about gypsies, but they take very different perspective on gypsy life um, and the way that he's describing them. So the first one uh, was written in the 1820s and it's called The Gypsy's Evening Blaze. To me, how wildly pleasing is that scene which doth present in evening's dusky hour a group of gypsies centred on the green in some warm nick where Boreas has no power. Where sudden starts the quivering blaze behind, short shrubby bushes nibbled by the sheep that mostly on these short-sward pastures keep, now lost, now seen, now bending with the wind. And now the swarthy sibyl kneels reclined, with progling stick she still renews the blaze, forcing bright sparks to twinkle from the flays. When this I view, the all-attentive mind will oft exclaim, so strong the scene pervades, Grant me this life, thou spirit of the shades. Okay, so uh, the first point to note about this poem is that it's a sonnet. Um, So, by way of a refresher, um, a sonnet typically is 14 lines long, Um, This is a Shakespearean uh, sonnet, which means that it's divided into three sections of four lines, and then there's a final concluding kind of idea in in the final two lines. Uh, And um, there are set rhyme schemes um, with with sonnets as well. Now, the reason why it's, it's interesting to kind of know that this is a sonnet, as far as this poem is concerned, is because sonnets um, can often... Uh, be thought of as as little kind of pictures, uh, little miniatures um, of of a of a scene or an idea. Um, you know, they're self-contained kind of pieces of poetry um, and quite highly structured. You know, you've got this rhyme scheme, you've got a set number of lines, uh, you've got you know quite traditional ideas that can often be expressed um, in sonnets, and also um, they're a very highly literary kind of form. Um, you know, you've got uh, Petrarchan sonnets, um, named after Petrarch, the great Italian poet, uh, and Shakespearean sonnets, and obviously Shakespeare needs no introduction. So when Clare in the 1820s, or in 1820, when he's just setting out on his public career, is writing in a sonnet form, uh, remember he's a farm labourer, he's kind of making a claim to being part of that established literary tradition. And that's something that people don't necessarily always acknowledge about Claire. People think of him as a as a real outsider, um, somebody who can kind of be contrasted very easily with um, you know Wordsworth or Coleridge or Byron or or whoever. But in this poem, I think he's really trying to sort of place himself as as he is a labourer. He's accepting that, but he's also kind of making a claim to be considered as a poet in his own right, not just as a curiosity. 
So that's the kind of the, the, the sort of the structure of the poem and, and what I think it might be telling us. Now, the subject matter of the poem um, is obviously about um, this group of gypsies, which um, Claire has, has encountered on this, um, on this moorland at evening's dusky hour. Um, he's, he's kind of providing a little description, a little neat potted description of, um, of, these gyps of the gypsies' camp, um, of the sheep, um, and, and the sort of the, the foliage um, nibbled by the sheep that surround the gypsies. Um, and it's, it's quite a detached perspective he's taking um, to the scene, I think. Again, you know, bearing in mind that the sonnet is, is often a form that describes a sort of a picture in words, um, you've got lines towards the end, when this I view... So it's, it's the sense that the, the speaker of the poem is kind of separate to the scene itself. He's not necessarily part of the scene. It's almost like he has created this picture or is viewing it from the outside of the camp. Um, when this I view, the all-attentive mind will oft exclaim, so strong the scene pervades, again, that language of, of painting and scenery, grant me this life, thou spirit of the shades. So you've got one of these kind of very um, typical sort of poetic, um, you know, invocations, you know, a, a call on the spirit of the shades to grant the speaker this life. So it's a very kind of, um, uh, you know, sort of, um, uh, it's a description that, that Claire wants to be part of. He wants to um, invoke the power of the scene and, and to become part of it, um, to grant him this life. Um, to actually sort of, you know, to, to live life like these gypsies. It's a very kind of romanticized, idealized view of gypsy life that we're getting in this poem. So I guess what I'm saying about this poem is that there are some very kind of highly literary features to it in terms of its form, its structure, the kind of the attitude and the tone it takes. But yet, even within this poem, you're still getting some of the characteristic features of Clare's poetry in particular, some of the things that he's become known for. So you've got words like progling, which um, is, uh, is a dialect word. I, I don't know, you know off the top of my head what progling means, but you get the sense of a, of a stick that's kind of jiggling and poking the fire. And you often get these kind of dialect words that are uh, in Clare's poetry that um, he would have used in his in his ordinary life uh, in Northamptonshire. Um, uh, the progling stick is forcing bright sparks to twinkle from the flays, not from the flames, but the flays. Now it helps with the rhyme that he's trying to set up with the word blaze. But again, you've got this kind of playing with language um, in the sense that it's not necessarily highly literary language the whole time in this poem, even though the sort of the poem as a as a whole is um, is taking a very uh, kind of literary view of it. Now, against that poem, I want to contrast another poem that Claire wrote uh, much later um, in his career, uh, called "The Gypsy Camp," uh, and this you'll you'll hopefully get the feeling. Um, you know, when I read the poem, that we're getting a very different view of um, of the gypsy camp to this kind of idealized, slightly unrealistic view um, that Claire puts forward in the Gypsy's Evening Blaze. The snow falls deep, the forest lies alone, 
The boy goes hasty for his load of brakes, then thinks upon the fire and hurries back. The gypsy knocks his hands and tucks them up, and seeks his squalid camp half-hidden snow, beneath the oak which breaks away the wind, and bushes close with snow-like hovel warm. There stinking mutton roasts upon the coals, and the half-roasted dog squats close and rubs, then feels the heat too strong and goes aloof. He watches well, but none a bit can spare, and vainly waits the morsel thrown away. Tis thus they live, a picture to the place, a quiet, pilfering, unprotected race. Okay, so hopefully you're already kind of, without any sort of introduction or explanation, getting a, a very different sense of what gypsy life might mean to the poet or to the speaker um, in this later poem. Rather than a cosy kind of nook um, tucked away from, um, uh, from the winds and from the cold that we got in the earlier poem, in the gypsy camp, this later poem by Claire, we've got the sense that the gypsies are a very marginalised people. They are really living um, hand-to-mouth, kind of on the edge, not only um, of the world and of society, but also very much on the edge. There's, there's a very fine line between survival uh, and starvation in, um, in this poem. So it's a winter scene, the snow falls deep, the fire is not just a, a kind of a, an aesthetic sort of object that's, you know, that, that kind of lends interesting light and colour to the scene. It's necessary for warmth. Um, these people will freeze without this uh, source of heat. Um, and yet it, the, the heat can be too strong. It roasts not only the food, but also the dog. So there's the sense of discomfort the whole time. Um, and there's hunger. Uh, you know, the, the dog is starving. He vainly waits the morsel thrown away. Um, the dog needs something to eat, but the gypsies just have no food to spare. They need it all for themselves. Um, and you get, again, this interesting sense um, of a, a kind of an allusion to, to the idea that the speaker is outside the scene. Tis thus they live. A picture to the place. So it's an interesting kind of relationship to that earlier poem, which was also kind of creating a picture. This is very much a, um, a kind of trying to, to show a, a sort of more realistic picture of, of, um, of gypsy life. And then you get this really beautiful, um, quite uneasy um, closing line. Tis thus they live a picture to the place, a quiet, pilfering, unprotected race. So very much trying to reveal the truth behind these um, otherwise kind of idealized, romanticized ideas of, um, of gypsy life. So these are kind of two uh, very similar poems in terms of structure, um, very different, however, in terms of attitude and approach. And this kind of tension really works itself um, or works its way through a lot of Claire's poetry. Um, as I said at the outset, he was in a really kind of um, marginal position with regards to sort of the general publishing industry um, in the 1820s and 1830s. He, he kind of had a sense throughout his career that he, there was sort of a set um, uh, sort of 
number of topics that he could write about. And if he kind of ventured outside those topics, which were very much about, you know, village life, um, he, he, he wouldn't be judged very kindly. So you, you've got these interesting kind of um, complications of, of sort of aesthetic theory, you know, that this guy is, is a self-taught genius, but at the same time, um, while he's making a little bit of money out of his publishing um, and being celebrated for his poetry, there's also a real kind of class element at work here. There's the sense that if he was to kind of be removed from his um, from his social class and from his his place in the village, um, that that would be uh, totally unacceptable. And it sort of you you kind of get a sense of the tension that Claire faces throughout his career in these two poems that I've discussed today. There's a sense of well, what what will my readers want to read this? you know, very idealized view of village life um, versus his own kind of sense that, it, that things are, are not always as, um, as, as pretty and as, um, as comfortable as that sort of literary kind of um, audience would want to see. Anyway, I'll put both those poems uh, in the show notes for this episode. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this kind of very brief analysis of John Clare. We'll be coming back to Clare in future episodes, I'm sure. Um, he's a fantastic poet. Um, but I also want to talk about some of the other poets um, writing in this period, um, you know, both before Clare, who he's responding to, and, and what comes after Clare as well. That's it for now. Catch you in another episode. <laughs>